Hello, and welcome to the Asima Development Podcast. I'm your host today, David Brady. And today on the panel, we have Mike Chalice, Eddie Lopez, Ramses Bateman, Kyle Archer, and Afton Call. Welcome, welcome, everybody. How's everybody doing? Been a while since I've been on. It's good having you. Yeah, it's been a while. It has. It's been. It's good to be back. All right. Today, we are going to dive in and talk about what do you study to continue learning. And I'm kind of excited to talk about this because this has been actually coming around on my feed and the things that I listen to. I've actually got some unusual answers to this. Uh, I'm kind of curious, but I'm going to throw it out to the room because you guys know that when I when I show up, I talk too much. So somebody else talk. What do you guys study to continue learning? It's an interesting question because when I graduated from high school, my career didn't exist. That is, you couldn't be a web developer. That role didn't exist in the in the early 90s, that there was no such thing, right? Yeah. Yep. <laughs> it, it didn't really exist in a meaningful way for some time after that. We've touched on this idea before on the podcast that there are some accidents of, you know, of birth and, and, and your background that sometimes, you know, affect your career trajectory. This is kind of a big deal that, you know, the industry is changing and uh, it's, it's a new industry for web development in particular, but, you know, kind of anything that touches the internet didn't exist in any meaningful form. So if you're not learning, you might not even have the chance to have a career because, like I say, the, the career didn't exist. A mobile wow. development didn't exist, what, Yeah, in 10 years ago, 15 years ago? That didn't exist as a profession because there was no such thing as a smartphone. I saw an actual study on that, and I cannot remember the number now, but it was, a, it was an alarmingly large number of people in the technical sector who had jobs that... Yeah, that did not exist when they started college. They graduated and went straight into a job, and their job is ecclesiastical brand manager or technology evangelist or data personality manager, right? What is any of this stuff? And yeah, if, you, if you're not studying now to grow yourself, there's entire jobs coming that <laughs> you're not prepared for because it's not coming down the mainstream curriculum. And that you couldn't be prepared for. You know, there, there's not going to be a university degree for it because they'd have to invent the the field, right? Mm-hmm. And yeah. you know, you're not going to learn mobile development in college if the iPhone hasn't come out yet. There's a chicken and egg sort of problem. One of them has to come first. And yeah, academia so- is 20 years behind, right? I mean, it's, yes. I remember in 2005 or six, the people that I was working with that were coming out of BYU we're all Java programmers. And I was really surprised by that. I'm like, well, when I went there, it was C++ and assembly language. And, oh, you guys are now doing Java. Java had been out for 10 years, right? 96, I think, 94 when it came out. And now it's in academia. But everybody that was good at Java had been programming in Java for five, six, seven, eight years. And it was just now showing up in the colleges. Yeah, and I think there's always going to be that lag I mean, just in the best of all possible worlds, professor, no- mm-hmm. you have some really forward thinking professor notices a new thing, takes the time to gather the information, stay up to date on the, you know, the latest state in the, in the field and write a textbook that doesn't happen overnight. Mm-hmm. I mean, in, in the best of cases, you know, you're probably going to be at least a couple of years behind the industry. Oh, yeah. In a- There's a weird sentiment that I've, I've actually heard a professor express, which is that universities have, they have an obligation to present grounded, well-spread fundamentals, which means they actually have a duty to avoid fads. 
So the only way to avoid a fad is to wait for something to stand the test of time. And unfortunately, that takes time. So back to your question. <laughs> mm -hmm. you got to stay relevant. And mm -hmm. I enjoy learning. I enjoyed school. I uh, let me clarify that because there are a lot of people like, oh, man, school. School is awful. There's some aspects of school that can be wonderful and others that, you know, maybe not so much. You know, you look at little children. They love to play. They love to explore. I look at my young kids. They they like to try out new things all the time. It's innate. and They find mm -hmm. great joy in creativity and exploration. And if that's how you define school, well, hey, school is great, right? I get to go learn new things and try new stuff. That That's play. But if school is uh, learning things by rote and getting in big trouble if, if you made a mistake somewhere, well, that's not fun at all. Mm -hmm. So I clarify a little bit <laughs> that when done right, I think that for people in general, you know, we, we have that innate curiosity and deep longing to try new things and to explore mm -hmm. And so, you know, that, that part of education, I, I really enjoy myself. I love to read. One thing I do is I, you know, subscribe to newsletters. Some people do it a different way. Uh, but, you know, that way, that way I can look through and generally aggregate newsletters in uh, academic fields, which I'm interested so that I can look mm -hmm. through. Uh, so here's some articles that may interest you. And I look, go look through and like, yeah, that one does interest me. Right. So that I can keep up to date on the state of the industry or on national industries, you know, things that are starting to form. I'm personally interested in machine learning, so I, I follow that pretty closely. I follow that. I've also taken courses uh, online in topics that interest me, both alone and with others. And I will say that taking a class with somebody else, you're far more likely to finish it because there's mm -hmm. the social aspect to it. So Absolutely. I found that. And it is true also that just kind of in the course of your job, you will encounter things and you shouldn't be ashamed to go out and, and learn that as you're going. So there's, there's a quick sampling of some things that I do. I love, there's a thing that happens to me occasionally in this field. When I'm talking to people, I, I talk about, you know, being an autodidact and, and, and learning and growing on your own, like motivating yourself. And I actually hear people come back and tell me, my boss tells me, I don't pay you to learn. And I just laugh and laugh and laugh and laugh and laugh because I ask them, well, what are you working on? Because in software, what your boss hands you pretty much every single morning is here's a thing that's never been done before. Go do it. Uh, you sure your boss doesn't pay you to learn? Your job is literally to learn. Absolutely. I, I said at the top of the call that I had had kind of a weird insight into this because of something that I had been looking into and I was going to try and hold it in my back pocket, but you, you stepped right onto it, Mike, with uh, talking about children. There was a, a fantastic uh, video. I'll have to dig it up if uh, if we've got show notes uh, for the show. I'll I'll put these out. But it's a if not, you can search for it on YouTube. It's a a discussion that Neil deGrasse Tyson had in an interview, and he got asked, "What do you study? What are you learning right now?" And he kind of goes off on this tangent about the things that he's studying, about how he's he's interested in studying how people learn and how how people change the way they think. But he veers into this beautiful, beautiful anecdote about how, as an educator, he feels that it's his job to spend energy teaching people to love experimentation. And he needed to illustrate, what does that mean? He's like, when you have a six-year-old pushing a tray table with a glass of water on it, and that glass is shaking, that's an experiment. This child is doing an experiment. If I shake this, it tips, it falls, the glass breaks. That's an experiment. I have a situation, I have a stimulus, I have a response. And 
so many of us, like the natural instinct is don't do that. Don't do that to the degree that it's just simply, you know, a day-to-day occurrence. Yeah, sure. I mean, you got to live with your kids, right? But if you can view it from the point of view of this is an exploring creature conducting an experiment on the universe outside of them. And I want to encourage them to gather prima facie evidence, firsthand evidence on the universe around them. And you let them break the glass and you say, okay, what did we learn without shaming them? Not the what did we learn? No, but, but literally, no, seriously, what did you learn? What tell me, tell me what you learned from this. Or if you must be a preventative in this to step in and say, what do you think you're going to learn? What do you think is going to happen here? And again, not to do it in a shaming way, but to do it in an encouraging way. And that takes energy, right? I mean, you got to go buy a new glass <laughs> and then replay. You got to clean up a mess, right? So if the, if the child's too small to clean up broken glass, but that child goes on to become a scientist or an explorer because they end up with a firsthand thirst for exploration and knowledge. And they also gain this core belief that exploration is safe and wonderful rather than damaging and hurtful because I got yelled at when I broke a glass. I was blown away that that's what Neil deGrasse Tyson is studying right now is that level of, of learning. And I thought, wow, he's, he's literally learning how to learn and how to teach people how to learn. That's cool. We could probably spend a lot of time talking about that joy of, of exploration that children have. And maybe that could be a, a guiding principle as we're talking about this topic. What do you do to stay up to date? Well, be curious. <laughs> if you've got curiosity, feed it. Because if you don't feed it, it'll kind of atrophy. Mm-hmm. And you'll find yourself burned out and bored. But if you feed it, then you're going to find your career pivoting. And you're going to be in that job that didn't exist 10 years ago because you'll have gradually migrated uh, you know, and followed those, uh, followed your curiosity into something new. Absolutely. What are things that we can do if not to, I mean, I I, I think it's like a foregone conclusion for us to say, we got to keep learning. We got to keep growing. Are there conscious, explicit things that you can do? I know that the, the, the Atlas team at ASEMA, there's dedicated time on the schedule. This is learning class. This is time for, you know, this is time for us to sharpen our skills, skills clinic, literally what it's called. And it's, it's an invested amount of time. I've not worked at a place that had that dedicated. So most shops that in my experience don't do that. What can you do to encourage those around you to learn or to create? I just realized I'm trying to trick you into giving me the answer that I want. And the answer that I want you to give me is that if I go create the environment where everybody's learning, then I get to learn too. So I'll throw that out. But what can we do to create an environment of learning that where other people can learn, grow and continue and we can learn, grow, and continue. And who cares? Not just like for you getting a, your next job, but how is that going to benefit your employer here today? You dropped a couple of hints there. <laughs> the first you said, well, you do the skills clinic where you take dedicated time every day. Well, not everybody out there is going to be able to you walk up to your boss and say, we're going to start taking an hour every day and, and learning stuff. Now, a lot of you probably could because your boss might be like, okay, that sounds great. I want better mm-hmm. educated employees. Sometimes that might be a little overwhelming, like, wait, what? What about the productivity? But you don't have to start that big. Start a book club. Start a mm-hmm. book club, right? Now you you are working with other people, which will help keep you motivated. And you can do that together. Or go 
know, find some people who are interested in a class. Go take it at the community college, the local university, or or online. Notice how there's a together here. There's a recurring theme. <laughs> Helps keep you motivated, but you wanted to make space for other people. There's things that you can do, I think, wherever you are to make that kind of space. You can say, well, let's read a book together. Let's do a book club. And then every week we'll talk about it. You're not taking very much time. You can even do it in your lunch break, right? You can make that space. Let's go take a class. And then you uh, swap ideas, right? You you give each other support. Like, hey, are you, uh, have you done homework three yet? <laughs> um, mm-hmm. You can find somebody who is starting their career or who wants to start their career and say, hey, want to get together at lunch and I'll help you out to learn some of this coding thing or this data thing or, you know, whatever it is that they're wanting to pursue. Well, now you have a recurring opportunity to get together and mentor somebody. And as you mentor, you learn a lot. Through a few ideas out there. I'm curious, other people I think have been involved in these ideas and uh, ideas and more. I'm throwing these out because I've been involved in all of these things before. I mean, I've done these things. Other people, have you done other things or have you participated in the kinds of things I mentioned and how did it work out? One idea that we incorporate quite a bit, probably in our organization, but specifically on our team, is encouraging the idea of pair programming and pair reviewing, which I think helps to promote a healthier understanding of how things you know work or should work or can work and you know just alternative solutions and overall just better discussions and better collaboration, which I think is important. You know, each of us is is limited by our experiences and and you know we're limited to our current understanding of, of things. So gaining someone else's perspective or insight and experience is, is tremendous. I agree. I think our pairing, which has been highly encouraged on the Atlas team for quite some time, is a great way to like have this ongoing mentoring environment, which then helps everyone to continue learning because everyone is teaching those who know more, teaching those who know less. And those who know less get to have a chance to try and explain things to someone else. And that develops their skill. Um, I think that's a wonderful thing that we have on our team. I want to go back just a little bit to what Dave mentioned earlier was um, our skills clinic and how that's been in place for a while as an opportunity for us to spend time sharpening our skills. And the funny thing is, and Mike can attest to this, is we started that skills clinic kind of as part of an internship. But after the internship ended, it was really hard to get the skills clinic to keep it going. It was hard to get developers on the team to attend and take advantage of it. And even before the skills clinic, the, you know, take an hour a day to sharpen your skills was talked about, encouraged. But I found for me that it was really hard to take that time, even though it was being handed to me on a platter and said, mm-hmm. do it. Um, it was really hard to take the time. And it has been always really hard because when you're in the middle of a problem, it's hard to set it aside and go do something else. Context shifting is hard. You always just feel like I need to get this done. I need to get this solved. I need to get this out. Sometimes there's pressure to get something out quick. Sometimes it's other people are relying me. Sometimes, you know, there's just always a lot of weight going and pressure to get work done. There's always so much work to do. We can never catch up, which I think contributes to that. So Mm -hmm. recently I realized something that has made a world of difference in me taking that time to sharpen my skills 
as often as I can. I don't know that I'm getting an hour a day, but certainly more than I was in the past. And what that was, was thinking about my career and what I'm working toward personally. So I I actually took this little online course on LinkedIn learning about, I think it was how to choose or organize your priorities when everything on your plate is a priority. (laughs) And so Mm -hmm. it was bringing things down into, well, you have to think about what's urgent and what's important and do the things that are urgent and important first. And then the urgent, but not important or important, but not urgent or, you know, they like had this stack of how to decide what to do first. Mm -hmm. And then it also talked about another way to decide and get things done that you keep wanting to do, but haven't figured out how to make happen is to think, okay, where do I want to be a year from now? Where do I want to be in my career? What do I want to have accomplished? Um, Where do I want to be five years from now? And I was thinking a year from now, I want to have better technical skills than I have today. And I want to have written a lot more code and have a lot more experience in our code base. And in my new newish position as a team lead, it's been a lot harder to find time to be writing code and be learning. But when I said, okay, a year from now, if I haven't progressed in those two areas that are super important to me, mm-hmm. I'm going to be really frustrated with myself. So the only way to make that happen is for me to make sure that every day starting yesterday, (laughs) I prioritize that. And sometimes I have to take something that is a priority and say, I'm not going to do that for one hour. And instead, I'm going to spend some time sharpening my skills or working on a ticket because that is also a really high priority. And that's made the difference for me is knowing what my goal is for myself a year from now, five years from now. That's amazing. That's awesome. Thank you. There's was... there's so many things you just dropped on there. I'm like writing frantically. I love that idea that there's always so much to do. I would amend that and say there's always too much to do. And just like you said, when everything is priority one, nothing is priority one. Well, guess what? You can weaponize that to your advantage. If you can't stop to improve your skills and invest in yourself because you always have too much to do, then stop and invest in yourself because you're still going to have too much to do whether you stop and invest in yourself or not, right? And a month from now or a year from now, if you have increased your capacity a month ago or a year ago, you're reaping the benefits of that. Yeah, absolutely. You said having a goal and it it reminds me of a thing I did in... Oh God, I... <laughs> Somebody told me once that I hate when programmers stand around telling war stories. And this is totally a war story. I'll I'll make it quick. Back in like 2006 or seven, I had gotten into Ruby on Rails and I was really excited about it. But all the work in my hometown was PHP. And I had a, a customer approach me. I was freelancing back then. I had a customer come to me and said, I want you to build me a website from the ground up. And this was an old customer. We had a really good trust relationship. And he also paid me miserably. (laughs) He wanted old rates, you know, from 10 years ago when you didn't know how to program. And I negotiated with him that I will do this for you and I will do it at the old rates, but I'm doing it in Ruby on Rails. And he didn't program. You know, I I basically told him I'm going to do this with a left-handed metric spanner. And he was like, yeah, okay, knock yourself out. And because I had that as an explicit objective that I want to get professional experience working in this, I was able to just gin it up out of whole cloth and basically say, I'm starting this project professionally because I'm a consultant and I can do that. And then a year later, 
when I got the opportunity to work in Ruby on Rails at a company and they were like, well, what experience do you have? And I'm like, I've been doing it for the past year. And that was like super, super useful. Interesting. My intro to Ruby on Rails was somewhat similar. I was a company doing Java. They said, you know what? We need to use an interpreted language. We want the flexibility and speed that we've seen other people have interpreted languages. So you're going to do PHP. And I had done quite a bit of PHP kind of on the side. And I thought, given the state of that language community at the time, I thought, if we do this, we're going to have a horrible ball of mud in, in no time flat. I need to use something that has a framework and organization that we can work with. And I, I heard a presentation about Ruby on Rails at a Java users group. It was like, oh, there's this new framework in beta called Ruby on Rails. So I went and I, I wrote the seed of what of, of our rewrite in, in Ruby on Rails over the weekend, kind of learned the language and the, and the framework. Spent a long, long weekend. I came back and I said, okay, well, I've got this prototype. Uh, what if we try this? Like, oh, mm-hmm. okay. I mean, you've already got it. Might as well. <laughs> and we ran with it. And I've been doing it ever since. That's awesome. Rails had that sneaky underdog thing, right? There was that, that, that seminal post by DHH, build a blog in 15 minutes. I've seen that happen as well, where somebody says, oh, let's switch to Rails. And they're like, well, what's the startup cost? It's so great to be able to say, I wrote it on the car over here today. Or, you know, I, I wrote it last night that the startup is done. Now all that's left is all the really hard work. But you, you don't tell them that. You just tell them, oh, look, the, look, the, the startup piece is done. That's half the work, right? Yeah, <laughs> it's true. I can't say that that application we rewrote, it ended up having one-tenth the number of lines of code and it did more. But yeah. That doesn't necessarily mean better. So, I mean, I'm not trying to be a, a framework snob or, a, or anything, but there, there, you know, there were, there were some definite bonus, you know, pluses that, that came from it. But yeah, they, exactly. You, you come with the prototype. It's a lot easier to sell your cause. Mm-hmm. There's a, a line count that in my experience, Ruby has about a somewhere between a three to one and a 10 to one ratio of line count where prior to Rails, I was used to working on uh, C++ projects with, you know, half a million lines of code and then PHP projects that had, you know, 100,000, 150,000 lines of code. And now if I see a Rails project with more than 30,000 lines of code, I get scared because that's a big project, right? Because you can do so much and there's trade-offs to that, right? It's, it's a lot harder to tell your manager, oh yeah, I wrote a thousand lines of code today. It's a lot harder to do that in Ruby than it is to do it in C++, right? Because there's just so much boilerplate. You, you get 900 lines for free. Right. And you need to recognize there's trade-offs as well. You know, we're talking about interpreted languages. You know, Ruby specifically, you don't get some of the type checks that you get from yeah. other languages. And there's some real trade-offs there. I'm thinking mm-hmm. how TypeScript is overtaking JavaScript. It compiles to JavaScript, right? I mean, it's, it's the same language, basically, but people are, want to have that type safety because it avoids certain kinds of problems. So, I mean, absolutely, there are trade-offs, but interesting ones. Mm-hmm. We could really get into this. <laughs> with some There's problem. a, oh yeah, I could, I could drill into this real easy. There's a concept that I've seen. Well, actually, this is a good example of like learning. And then all of a sudden, what I would say about studying to learn something is don't be afraid to chase a tangent, Right. Because like, that's where all the marrow is. That's where the juiciest tidbits are is when you're in the middle of something and then whoop, we go off down this, this sidebar. Yeah, but my ADHD fires way too hard. I look around and I realize everyone's eyes are glazed over because we're seven tangents deep. And there's an idea where those of us coming from old type, statically typed languages, we had this all this upfront checking 
that the language had to do. And that caused ceremony and that caused us to slow down and it was very frustrating and we wanted to go fast. And these interpreted languages came along and these dynamic languages and it's like, oh, hey, look, we don't have to do our upfront checking. Well, then our programs blew up. So it's like, okay, we need to do unit testing. We need to test at the other end. If you're not gonna test that all the types are correct, then you have to test that the program behaves correctly at the end of it. And there's a really phenomenal thing in the, in the industry where you can see some people going, I don't have to check up front, but I'm too lazy to actually come back around and test at the end. And those people, bless their hearts, their coworkers are the ones who are saying, let's maybe go back to statically type. I think it would be okay if Jim could not write software without enforcing something on either end of this, right? Let's bookend this somewhere. We should do an episode on, on typing. <laughs> oh yeah. Um, I can do about 110 words per minute. <laughs> oh, wait, wait. You know, Ramsey's mentioned pairing. That's really interesting. You didn't say formal study, but getting involved with another developer so that you're sharing ideas with each other, kind of continuing on this idea of tangents. Those of you who've learned something pairing, do you usually learn something that you were expecting to learn when you're pairing with somebody? Never. I'll let somebody else take the question too, though. <laughs> yeah, not always. You never really know what you're about to learn. Like it's not really super formal. So it's just get together, do some discussions and throw out uh, different ideas, different solutions and, you know, see what you come up with. It's always an interesting and unexpected experience. Yeah. So you set up to solve a problem. You're pairing to solve a problem, right? And you end up learning something. I was talking with some people about recursion earlier this week about a function calling itself. And we ended up talking about a good deal about memory management, about how your computer manages memory and the operating system and, and addressing and pages and memory and virtual memory. Kind of far afield from recursion. We talked about that so that we'd understand how that stack of function calls eventually is going to run out of space. So mm -hmm. we, we went in with uh, one goal in mind and ended up somewhere very different, but they're both useful. It always happens that way if you let it happen, right? You leave room for that spark. Yes. It's very important to not fall into the trap of trying to predict the spark, or rather you can absolutely predict that the spark will happen. I've done podcast episodes where everyone is sitting around going, what are we going to talk about? I have no idea what we're going to get out of this. And I just told everyone on the call, it's fine. Just sit down, relax. It will happen. Trust me, it will happen, right? Banking on the spark happening is absolutely doable. But if somebody sits down and says, what are you going to learn today? It's really hard. Mike, you might've sat down and said, well, we're going to learn about recursion. We're going to learn about creating base cases. We're going to look about, we're going to get into mutual recursion where this function calls that and that function calls back into this other one and blah, blah, blah. And down the road you go. Nowhere on your prospectus would you put, we're going to learn about how memory management, da, 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 that the heap is well-managed and the stack is not. And da, 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 you know, down you go. If you lock yourself into that predictive deductive thinking rather than walking in open-armed and ready for like inductive learning, you'll cut yourself off from your own creativity. What's the, what's the rule from, from writing? You can't create and edit at the same time. You can't be an editor for your writing while you're writing the thing you're writing. I've missed the conversations where I throw three metaphors at a problem at the same time. There you go. But we, we went into there. This idea that pairing is a really great way to enhance learning. You don't go in there necessarily with a goal in mind. Instead, you create an environment where that curiosity and exchange of ideas can happen. Mm -hmm. 
I want to say that this uh, learning from pairing is not limited to learning additional technical skills, like some new coding trick or even a new design pattern or something, which are definitely valuable. But one thing I also get from pairing is getting to see how someone else's process works. What kinds of questions do they ask to navigate you know, the problem we're trying to solve? Where do they go in the code? How do they figure out what questions to ask and where to look? And what are the steps that they take from start to finish to solve a problem? I think processes are super interesting and having a good process can make you more effective. This kind of goes into what I was thinking about what I do to continue learning. I realized also recently that I have kind of two different areas of learning that I focus on. One is on super technical skills, learning a new language or refreshing my Ruby on Rails knowledge or even studying algorithms, which we've been doing in our book club. But on the other hand, I'm also studying like how to manage projects, how to communicate well with people I work with, like on my team. Right now, as a leadership, we're studying crucial conversations and learning about Mm. how important it is to be able to talk to people and communicate well your intentions and your ideas and organize your thoughts and respectfully and all those things. And we, we mentioned in an earlier podcast episode Development is so much more than just writing code. We do so much more. We are teammates. We're working with other people. We're organizing projects. We need to know how to manage our time to be efficient and effective. And so I also study time management and figuring out your priorities, how to figure out your priorities, leadership skills, communication, Because I believe that all those things are also going to make me a better developer, a better teammate, more effective in my career. Mm -hmm. There's a a thing, I believe it's called the synthesization step or integration. I I can't remember. There's there's like steps to learning ideas. And for me, the exciting thing is, is near the end when all of a sudden you find out that these wildly disparate fields of study are 100% overlapping where like you're getting into time management and you're like, okay, this is important and it's essential and I have no control over where it's going. So I have to focus on the process and just let it go where it needs to go. Or this other thing, it's not important, but it needs to be done. So I need to focus on what is the fastest way to get to this outcome. And then weeks later, you're having a conversation with a coworker and you realize I need you to write this to this API I don't want to talk to you about your feelings about it. We'll do that at lunch. I just need you to do this. And I need you to, I need it done quick. We've got this other deadline, right? So you're like, no, I I need to be efficient with you. I need to focus on the outcome. Boom, boom, boom. And then an hour later, you're talking to somebody else and you realize they are wide open, vulnerable. And you suddenly realize I can't be efficient right now. Efficient is the most deadly thing I can do to this conversation. I have to be effective in how I communicate with this person. And she was like, you know what? I'm clearing my schedule because this is important and I don't know how long it's going to take. When you see those parallels, you study how to communicate with people. And then a week later, you're writing some code and you're like, oh, how do I document this function? And all of a sudden you realize, oh yeah, I know exactly how the person reading this. I know what they're going to be hungry for, what they're going to be looking for. I'm going to document that. Or I'm going to write a unit test that expresses this. And it's kind of nice to have somebody come back and find you and say, I love that test that you wrote. 
because I could not figure out what your system was doing until I saw that test. And all of a sudden I could see the through line in all of your software. That's amazing. I've had that happen once in my career and I'm still bragging about it on podcasts today. I have a weird question for the group. You know me, I love weird questions. What is the weirdest, most out there thing that you have learned that you've been able to bring into a professional situation with benefit? I mean, obviously some of us bring weird stuff into the office just for the sake of bringing weird stuff into the office and it doesn't always go well, but is there something that you guys can think of that you're like, I did not expect to use that at work today? Yeah, that is a weird question. And I don't know if I have a good response for it. I spend a lot of my time trying to learn new things to to improve my workflow and to improve my my knowledge. Yeah, I don't know if I have a better response for any any weird weird things. I'm trying to think of a specific example. It feels like everything that I end up studying ends up crossing over. So here's a recent example. I'm going to take my kids out trick or treating. It's uh, we'll probably release this like next year in March or something. You're like, wait, what? <laughs> <laughs> but we're recording this in October. And here in the U.S., we're doing Halloween in about a week. And we were talking about how to do quick sort uh, earlier this week, or maybe it was last week. Recently, we were talking about how to do quick sort. And I was trying to think about how, well, how can I represent the intuition behind this idea in a way that you can get your head wrapped around in a minute or two? And I thought, oh, wait. Okay, so it's Halloween, and you've just come home with your big bag of loot. you got your big bag of candy. And you want to know which is the worst candy, which is the best candy. You want to go trade with your sister, right? And so you want to make sure you know that you're trading the bad stuff, keeping the good stuff. You want your Tootsie Rolls to be given away. You want the big candy bars. You get the idea. So you got this big bag candy. You want to sort it. Well, how do you go about doing that when you got a whole big bag of candy? How, how could you possibly go through and sort that in a reasonable way? Well, here's what you do. You dump out your candy on the floor and you pick out a random piece. And you say, this piece is going to be the decision piece. It's going to be the pivotal piece. And I'm going to take everything that's worse than that piece. And I'm going to put it on the pile in a pile to the left. And then take everything better than this piece. And I'm going to put it on a pile to the right. That's all I'm going to do. So I'm just going to put the ones worse than this to the left, better on the right. And that's an easy decision to make. I'm going to put this piece in the middle. Well, then I'm going to take the pile on the left. I'm going to do the same thing. I'm going to pick out a random piece and I'm going to take everything that's worse than that one, put it on the left, everything better than it on the right. Well, now I've got three piles. And I'm going to do that to each of those piles and then any piles that come after that until I have gone through all of my piles and all I have is a line of candy and it's perfectly organized from worst to best, left to right. That is the quick sort algorithm. For me, that illustrated in my mind in a way that, I, that I'm never going to forget. And that was a huge leap, right? It wasn't even a technical field at all. <laughs> it was just something that came from life. But these intersecting ideas happen all of the time and being able to connect them gave me a huge aha moment. That is awesome. Do any of us have any thoughts that we want to throw out on this? Is there there's something that you wish you could have said at this point that you want to get in? Keep the joy of curiosity in your life. Find a channel where you can keep that curiosity alive. And I think it'll serve you really well. For me, I would say don't be afraid to go way far afield with things. You want to be a better programmer? Study a parenting book. Pick up the guitar and learn music. Go hiking, learn how to hike better. You know, I actually study hiking instead of just, you know, throwing at it. Pick stuff way, way, way out. And you're going to find parallels to the thing that you do every day. And it'll surprise you. Yeah, that's a pretty good way to end it. Trying to learn things that you're curious in and also things that scare you. <laughs> yeah. Well, all righty. Thank you, everyone. This has been fantastic. I've missed coming back and hanging out with you guys. 
I'm enjoying my time over in the database land, but uh, I miss the front end, back end work. Thanks everyone for coming.